Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Wildfowl Podcast. I'm Skip Knowles, your host and editor of Wildfowl. And with me here today is my co-host, Nathan Ratsford, Associate Editor of Wildfowl. Um, we've been really excited to uh, start including some of our contributors um, in the Wildfowl Podcast, something we are uniquely positioned to do. And today we have one of our very favorite writers, Mr. Scott Haugen. Uh, he's a guy who is, he seems to work day to day in between killing ducks or cacklers in his daily routine. And I, and I see you've been hounding the birds pretty well lately, Mr. Uh, Mr. Scott. Um, you hail call from Oregon, right? That's right. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I'm excited. I've uh, been a fan of the magazine and the podcast for a long time. And uh, yeah, great to be here. Yep. Uh, I, I'm here in Oregon and, and our waterfowl season is kicking off great. It's it's interesting because I was up in Alaska end of uh, August and, and first half of September and we started getting some pretty good storms up there up uh, on the whole west side of Alaska and continue talking to, to friends and guide buddies up there and well, and uh, to mid-October, they said it was about the worst weather they'd, they'd seen in over 20 years up there. So a lot of those birds pushed down uh, our way about, about three to four weeks early. And then we had a good series of storms coming in from off the Pacific coast. And it's it, it, it's as good as waterfowl and I've seen out here in the Willamette Valley and gosh, probably close to 40 years. Uh, a, lot, a lot of birds moving in. So it make, makes the job easy. Isn't that funny? It was so much doom and gloom, you know, two months ago because we have a very serious drought going on in Southern Canada and in the Prairie Potholes region. But everyone's having a pretty fantastic season from what I've seen. Uh, so that's, that's really cool. I saw you with a photo on, on Instaspan the other day with uh, some big, they look like northern red legs mallards. And I'm from the Pacific Northwest. So I'm like, that's, a, that's early for the old red leg greenheads, you know. But they look like those big birds. Are those northern birds already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were. They're they're just nice, big, fat birds, and you know, quite a bit different, even though what we were getting three weeks ago. You know, you'll still get a resident bird in here. You know, kind of the little skinny drab colored thing. But yeah, they're they're looking good. They're nice and fat. Where I've never seen so many pintails uh, here at this time. I mean, they're usually they shoot right down to California, but we have a lot hanging in the valley here. It's been warm. Uh, a lot of our grass growth is coming up good. Uh, just tons of, of uh, food out there, not only on private land, but also public land. We've been doing really good on a lot of the rivers and sloughs. And it seems like anywhere you can access and, uh, and get decoys, there, there are birds moving. So, so yeah, it's a good, good way to start the season. Oh, that's really exciting. Calling, a, calling Scott Haugen a writer is like saying, you know, Dale Earnhardt was a guy who enjoyed driving cars. He's a... <laughs> Scott's uh, been, a, he's written more books than I can even remember. He uh, has been a successful producer for some time television, and he uh, hosted a television show pretty much his entire career. Um, and he, he's written, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of magazine articles, and he shoots waterfowl throughout that whole thing. It's just a, when I think of really well-rounded outdoorsmen um, who can do it all, um, not just one specific niche, I think, is Scott Haugen and a few others, just a small handful of others. He's trapped wolves. He calls mountain lions. Uh, he's lived in a, on and off again in Alaska in some of the most extreme environments as a teacher, uh, given to those little communities. And, uh, but, Scott, I've known you for a while now. I watched that incredible short film by your fantastically talented and good-looking son. And I, <laughs> even I've never known that you tracked down and killed a man-eating polar bear. Who can say that? You can't even legally hunt them anymore. <laughs> I'm going to make you tell us about that. 
Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, th that was quite the experience. So that was 1990. We were living in a little village called Point Lay. Um, Point Lay is way up on the Arctic coast. Barrow is the closest kind of town there. Uh, you know, 24 hours of darkness in the winter. One year we went 199 straight days below zero. Uh, 60, 70 below is, is pretty normal. I would quit running my trap line about 45 below. That's when things really got, got kind of dangerous out there. But yeah, long story short, a polar bear, the male polar bears don't, uh, don't hibernate. Uh, they're active feeding on the open leads where the, where the sea ice, the pack ice breaks open, where seals haul out all winter long. And the open lead was really cl close to the village that year. There were a lot of polar bears around. Uh, we had them in our you know, up on the doorstep, uh, neighbors shot him, you know, eating dogs. One neighbor uh, shot one Christmas morning that was breaking down his front door and shot right through the door to, to kill it. So, so, you know, polar bears were, were a pretty common um, uh, a, a encounter up there. And there, there was a guy and his girlfriend just walking down the road about four in the morning uh, uh, there in early December, 1990. And, and the bear just came out of nowhere and, grabbed the guy and, and took off with him uh, down towards the ocean. And uh, long story short, I had to get sworn in by the feds before I could go on that uh, little excursion there. And I was sworn in to where I could kill the bear if it was a threat to me or if I found it uh, with the victim. And, and when I came across him, he was, he was eating the man. And, and, uh, and I ended up shooting him uh, just with a flashlight, tracking him 42 below zero and, uh, and shot him and, and, and ended up, but yeah, it was uh it was quite the ordeal for sure. A little bit different. Also, I had many lions in Africa that I'd gone after and crocodiles in Africa. And uh, we lived in Sumatra, Indonesia for four years and uh, um, got onto a man-eating tiger there, Sumatran tiger. Didn't get him, but uh, I was within a few feet of him, but just couldn't get a shot. It was in a really thick jungle. So, so yeah, the man-eaters kind of take things to a different level for sure. Wow, that's incredible. It sounds like you have a, a story for Predator Nation for me there. For sure, <laughs> after, one after man eating clock, but uh, I, it's not a very good story because I never saw him. <laughs> anyway, this is a this is a waterfowl podcast, and uh, Scott is a super talented, down to earth, easygoing guy who who is just great on camera. So we're having, in addition to writing really writing really fun, compelling features, uh, he's got a great um, narrative tone to his voice where he's uh, encouraging people to get better at everything. You, anytime you read one of his stories, you uh, feel like you are a little bit of an expert on the, on the story after that. But he's also doing these awesome videos. One of the most popular feature stories he wrote for us recently was in September on what he calls versatile retrievers, the other breeds, Rothauers, Pudel Pointers. I'm still learning to say those funky German names. Um, and, and it was a it was something that as an editor or chief, I was like, I hate to veer from Labrador retrievers when I'm writing this. <laughs> In Wildfowl, we have such a limited news hole and print, and I just don't want to get these poodle pointers or whatever they're called. <laughs> My as, as usual, Scott sent us fantastic photos. He's a gifted photographer, takes it very seriously. And um, we had a, an opportunity to run a really big, gorgeous feature about these dogs, and I kind of held my breath about how it'd be received. And, and well, Nate could speak to that, and Scott, you can speak to that as well as. Um, you said you had some of the best response you've had in, in, in your career after that story. Yeah, I, I can only recall getting more positive feedback off of one article that I wrote 
gosh, over 20 years ago now. Uh, and, it, and it was really neat. The timing uh, when it came out, I was in Alaska, spent some time uh, in a camp a couple weeks up there with Jeff Wosley at the time at uh, Four Flyways. And of course, everyone who comes into that camp, you know, wildfowl fans. And, and it was just phenomenal. Everyone had read the story. That's all everyone wanted to talk about were, were the versatile gun dogs. And, and, you know, not so much the poodle pointers or the dross or the griffs, but, but I, I think what you're, what you're finding now is, um, is with the pandemic, a lot of people have had time. So two things have happened with that. Number one, a lot of people who have not hunted before are hunting more. And number two, they're buying dogs. Uh, so many people are buying dogs now that haven't had them before. And number three, with all this time, a lot of people want to do more than just waterfowl. Um, you know, th th this week I've hunted mountain quail, valley quail, blue grouse, rough grouse, um, and ducks. And we had, you know, I was out hunting geese uh, last week before we had our first season closure here. And I've also been getting after gray squirrels and then our fall turkey season is open as well. So, so all of these species that I've hunted with my dog, you know, over the last two weeks here, are pretty common. So, so, you know, in all, that, in all that I do, you know, I don't really see myself as an expert in any of this, but I'm just fortunate to make a living at it. And, and you mentioned it earlier, being, you know, being diversified, and that's how I've been able to do it. You know, hunting, fishing, trapping, predator calling, big game hunting, you know, bird hunting, whatever it is. And, and I'm not an expert at any of it, but, but what, being able to, to do this for a living, it's afforded me a lot of time in the field. And with that time comes knowledge. And really all I want to do is, is educate you know, people, friends who enjoy the passions that we do by being able to provide them with more information on things they love to do. And, and I think the timing uh, with, with this versatile gun dogs, the underdogs uh, um, uh, feature was, was just perfect. Uh, a lot of people are looking for dogs. They want to hunt fish. They want to look for, or they want to, you know, hunt birds, hunt fur, uh, blood trail. Uh, we're in states where that's legal. Uh, hunt fall turkeys, shed hunt, and then also have a good dog, you know, that's going to, you know, curl up on the end of the bed at night, and not be real high strung. So, so people are looking for something like this, I think more so than, than in recent years or prior years. Now, Scott, for our listeners who, who have never heard of a poodle pointer, um, can you talk a little bit about the breed itself? Um, and what, you know, what drew you to that type of dog? Was it again, just what you're talking about, the broad utility, or was it you had something before and you're looking for something extra or what led you to make that decision to get one? Yeah, really good question. So growing up, I never had a dog. I was a, a four sport athlete in high school and uh, um, went to college and played a little bit of ball there and and then just got caught up in academics, uh, got married, moved to Alaska. And I just, I didn't have the time that I needed to devote to, to being around, to raise a hunting dog. Uh, but I'd hunted around them my whole life growing up. Um, some impressed me, you know, some didn't. And of course, a lot of that came down to genetics and the, and the owner more than anything. Uh, the genetics and the owner, not genetics in the owner, just to clarify. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it, it, then what I got in the outdoor industry full time, uh, starting in 2000, 2001, um, my, my boys were then uh, born and growing up and, and around about 2007 or so I started looking for, for, for dogs. Uh, my boys loved bird hunting and, and, uh, we, we grew up, we had lap dogs. My wife and I uh, always did. We've been married since 1990 and um, thought, you know, now that we're doing this for a living, we're, we're based at home now in Oregon. Uh, 
back here, you know, now would be a good time. And I, and I looked and I thought, well, I'll get this breed, you know, and I was just going to get a lap and, and then uh, I wanted something that was a little more, um, you know, and just, you know, the, something that was more hypoallergenic where the kids didn't, you know, have allergies to it, something that could stay in the house, uh, um, you know, something that didn't shed a lot. And then I also wanted something that was versatile, something that would do everything I wanted to do. And, you know, we'd looked at getting a couple of different breeds and, and I'd hunted around several breeds and, and Skip had mentioned, you know, the TV shows we did. And we did those for 14 years and they were primarily big game uh, shows. And we flew all around the world doing those. And, and I was hosting two TV shows at the time for the Outdoor Channel um, for about three years there. And so, you know, I was going on 60, 62 big game hunts a year, um, all, you know, all around the world. So I got to, when those big game hunts were done, a lot of times we'd get to hunt birds. Uh, so I got to go on a lot of really neat bird hunts in different places of the, of the world and hunted behind a lot of different breeds. And there was w one year uh, I was actually working on a story on shed hunting for a magazine and, uh, and ran across the uh, poodle pointers. I thought, Holy cow. That, that, that's a really cool thing. And, and uh, ended up taking my, my sons who were then seven and nine on a couple um, um, hunts with these poodle pointers and, and what, what one of the poodle pointers just it was the hardest working dog I'd ever seen just just phenomenal and just so intense but but just so well trained and just just had an incredible hunt and uh, went back to the the cabin where we were staying uh, that night and and uh, we're sitting there after dinner and this dog hops up in my son's lap you know 60 pound dog and just curls up and go to and goes to sleep and to see that demeanor of intensity from the field and then to transition to where it related to this kid you know um, was really cool my my son said right there he said this is the kind of dog we need to get <laughs> And that's kind of, that's where it happened. And, and I've just worked closely with, you know, with some of those breeders and, and looking at lines. So the poodle pointer is a cross between a, a standard poodle, a German poodle and an English pointer. And they have the, the, you know, the good genetic lines have the best of the best traits of both of those. And, and they're, and they're, they're, very, they're very old to my understanding, right? I mean, they're not some new yes. sad breed that's been, you know, kind of yeah. a, everything's been crossed with a poodle just to clarify for listeners this is a very old german breed to my understanding yeah well it, it actually was brought into the yeah it is and it was brought into the u.s in the 1950s um by bodo winterheld who actually lived in oregon before he passed away here a few years ago so so oregon had a pretty rich history with these poodle pointers coming into the country and and he he was able to bring in a pretty elite bloodline and and, you know, it's like anything, you know, any versatile dog that you want to look at, you really want to check that bloodline, make sure that you're not just getting, you know, a poodle pointer, you know, factory, um, you know, pup producer, just like anything. Um, and there are some guys who stick to it and, you know, they're producing, you know, two litters a year and that's all they're going to do. Uh, but the quality that you're going to get uh, from those dogs, you know, greatly surpasses some of the other uh, choices that are out there. What's the smartest way to do that, to vet your pup? To make, you said it's easy to say, you know, to make sure you get one from thoroughbred hunting line. Yeah, you, you know, you know, How check out do that. Yeah, and that's a really good question because a lot of people will just Google Poodle Pointer and, you know, see, oh, there's this guy right here and, you know, he sells 70 pups a year and, you know, it's great. You, you know, I, I, I kind of compare it to preparing for a hunt. You know, you're going to go hunt somewhere with an outfitter. You're going to do the background check, right? So, so check into some of these places and and get a hold of some of these owners who have these dogs. 
uh, when I started getting into it, I was getting quite a bit of, you know, ink on these dogs and, and, um, it, and, and they, they became very popular and, and some other rider buddies were approached by other poodle pointer breeders and, you know, they got them in their hands and, and it was just kind of a train wreck uh, with some of them. So, so do the background research, check them out. Um, the, the guy I work with is Jess Bradley out of, um, Lakeview, Oregon. He has a, a very elite bloodline. Um, he, uh, um, took over from another guy who, who actually was probably the best breeder in the country, um, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, he got out of the business. And so, so Jess Bradley acquired some of his bloodline and plus he's bring, continuing to bring in some very good bloodlines, um, from Germany and the Czech Republic. And, th you know, th that's not just something where you say, I'd want a good breeding dog. And here it is, you know, they're, these dogs are going through just, just phenomenal tests over there um in, in the german market especially and and coming over here you know it's a two three four five year process to to get some of these quality dogs in here sometime and you know when you're going to invest a lot of money in these dogs it's 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 definitely worth the legwork to, to 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 do that homework now scott one thing i wanted to bring out in particular with these dogs you talk about it in your feature but everyone knows a, a Labrador Retriever's strongest suit is their marking ability. Bird drops stone dead and they'll remember where four, four birds dropped, take a line out perfectly. And they're bred to be handled. That's why you could cast them easily, right? But you bring up uh, in your feature, your dog's tracking ability on water. And that's something that I've witnessed with a lot of versatile breeds. You know, not every bird just crumples in a stone dead. Um, being able to have a dog that you can send and it can bring back that wounded bird that's moved out of the area the initial fall is a huge advantage for, for a lot of duck hunters. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experience with that with your dogs? Yeah, yeah, you bet. It's, it's interesting because just, uh, what, Saturday, what, three days ago, four days ago, whatever it is, uh, we were out on a hunt. My dad, who is almost 81 years old, and then another buddy was there, and we ended up getting 21 birds, and I just had my female um, poodle pointer along on that one, and and it, uh, we, you know, had several triples and quads and, you know, she had multiple retrieves on those. Like you say, you're going to get some cripples with that. And, and uh, there, there's one in particular that stands out in my mind just from a few days ago. Um, we dropped four birds. That I thought they were all dead in the decoys. And, you know, she went out and I, you know, hand signals, just got them, got them, got them. And the last one, she, she kept wanting to veer off from where I saw it hit. Last I saw, you know, it was upside down and, and uh, floating there. And, and, and I just kept, you know, sending her back with hand signals and right to the spot where I wanted her to go. And she kept wanting to leave. And, and finally I went out there with her and it, it was about foot and a half deep water. And I figured the, the dog or the uh, duck had flipped over and got caught in grass and just drowned there. And we just pounded it, couldn't find it. And she kept uh, going across the water. Um, wanting to go to the other side of this pond and, and I called her back because we had some eagles working the area hard and I just you know just with the bobbing head out there I didn't like that so kept calling her back calling her back and about a half hour later so I, I figured that bird would just get it out at the end of the hunt go back and you know pick it up as our final bird and find it um, about about a half hour later I uh, shot a duck dropped it in the decoys just dead you know 15 20 yards right in front of us she launches into the water swims right by that duck and just keeps going out there another 75 yards and you can see her that the way the wind was blowing you could see her hit this scent and she just does a 90 degree turn 
um, into the wind and goes up a bank line and I lose sight of her for minutes. And, and I thought she'd smelled a nutria. We have a lot of nutria in there. And I figured, Oh no, no, she's going to go get tangled up with the nutria. And you know, you don't like those things and, and uh, tangling with those. And she comes, comes running down the bank with this mallard, this Drake mallard that I dropped, you know, half hour earlier. And, and she knew exactly where it was. She scented the thing, you know, it ended up being about a 90 yard retrieve through, you know, quite a bit of thick cover. But it was one of those examples of, of you know, these dogs are way smarter than we are. They have a way, way better nose. You know, if I would have just let her do her thing instead of telling her where I thought the bird was initially, you know, then she'd have had that retrieve right off the bat. So you'll see things like that quite often. Uh, I was up in Alaska with one of the droths um, that Josh Powell um, has. His name's Udor, and he was actually featured uh, in that uh, uh, underdog's uh, feature as well. And he had just some phenomenal... Um, um, hunts up there. He reminded me so much of my my black uh, poodle pointer Kona, just his demeanor. And Josh let me take him out and hunt him three or four days just by myself. And and just the ability of these dogs to scent on water is it, it, really something you have to see be, because people just wouldn't believe that they can smell and follow it and adjust to it as the ducks move and as the wind shifts. It, it, it's pretty phenomenal. Quick question. That was the coolest part of that feature. That feature was Excellent top to bottom, right from the start to the end. I don't give that as easily as Nate knows. I'm much more prone to criticize my guy than anything. But that was such a cool part where your friend was complete negative Nancy about your dog. He's lost, confused. Your dog's now on land. What the heck's he doing? You know, and he made that 250 yard retrieve over what 15 minutes or something. Mm -hmm. But um, is there any first three things I got to find out? Are nutrient? Do they do they present like a a hazard? Well, they, they're a big, nasty, like um, muskrat on steroids from South America. <laughs> no one can even believe that they inhabit the Pacific Northwest. They, they seem like they should be at home in Louisiana and everything, but they're there on the Columbia River. Do they present a hazard to a dog? And have you, it totally makes sense that you say it now. I've had birds of prey when I'm big game hunting, walking in deep ferns, kind of take, uh, you know, have a look at my head. I'm sure you have too. Like they're thinking about, about grabbing it because it's a smaller object and it's moving. Have, have you heard of eagles grabbing a dog's head? Has that ever happened? Well, uh, up in Alaska, uh, when we lived up there, I heard of eagles and also snowy owls um, grabbing onto dogs uh, up there. So, it, we, it, you know, I've never seen so many bald eagles that we have in, in the valley uh, as we do right now. Usually, you know, see two or three a day. But we had six on our pond at one time the other day. And it, it was just, it, it was terrible. So, uh, you know, these things, they'll kill a nutria, you know, 30 pound nutria is nothing for them. You know, I mean, I've seen eagles, you know, take antelope and, you know, uh, you know, small doll sheep off the cliff. So, so, you know, 40, she's what, 40 or 53 pounds, I guess. So, you know, that's, that's nothing for them. So, so, so the eagles are, are a concern um, with that, uh, you know, just takes a quick snap of the talons and you bring a dog or blind them and its history there so uh the, and, and as far as the um nutria they've been around forever i i uh i started running a trap line in fourth grade and i did that all through uh, grade school junior high and into high school because i didn't want to work in the summers i wanted to go steelhead and salmon fishing right so 
So, uh, so one of the things I did a lot of trapping of were nutria. They were problems in the valley, you know, in the, in back in the early mid 1970s here. Um, I think with the, there were some guys who trapped nutria out at our, uh, uh, one of the leases we have, and they've trapped over 280 here um, this year already. So they just keep coming into these ponds, just, just coming in and, you know, you, you get a big, uh, you know, you get a big, you know, bore nutria, 25, 30 pounds with those, you know, you know, big, you know, giant uh, incisors and, and you, they latch onto a dog and they can, they can do some damage. Um, uh, both my dogs love getting after these and killing them. I actually hunt them uh, and usually I'll just head shoot them with the 22 and then my dogs will retrieve them too. So, so I do quite a bit of varmint hunting with my dogs and, and they'll bring those in as well. Cool. We shot a ton of uh, new in Argentina and they were nowhere near that big. I didn't realize they were that 25, 30 pounds. That's like the size of a coyote almost. Yeah, yeah, big, good eating. Did you eat the Nutria? They're unbelievable. It's like getting, I know. All, it's like getting all the grease <laughs> you wanted all at once. It was like a cross between squirrel and venison. Yeah, yeah. Like greasy, I loved it. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're phenomenally good eating. We eat a lot of them. And, and uh, uh, yeah, people think they're a big rat, you know, eating whatever. But, I mean, they're just grazing and, you know, browsing. So, yeah, just really, really good eating. So your dog, because it's a versatile dog and likes to chase everything, find sheds, get squirrels. Um, are there any downsides? Nathan's in the market. He's got a, he's got a pretty much perfect lab in his prime, as do I. And he's in the market because um, he doesn't have small children <laughs> to get another. <laughs> Thinking about one of these versatiles, is there any downside to them? We've talked about how great they are. You know, it, it's the, the, the shedding. I've heard a lot of people say we're getting a poodle pointer because they don't shed. They do shed. They just don't shed as much as other dogs. Um, I, I have my both my dogs are in kennels in my office right here. Um, you know, they, they just won't leave, you know, won't leave my side all day long. Um, you know, but, but there is going to be hair on the floor. Um, they're not 100%, you know, allergy free dogs. Like you'll hear a lot of people say, um, they, uh, um, they, they, as far as a downside with the poodle pointer, I haven't found any personally that, that, um, you know, that fit why I got them. I wanted a versatile dog that does it all. They're not, um, they're not high strung. They're not high energy. Um, <laughs> if anything, I guess if there's a downside, you know, my wife is the one you'd want to ask that because she said, anytime you leave the house, the dogs are watching you. You know, if you go, they know if you're going around the house, they'll run upstairs and they're whining. They just, they hate being gone from their owners. Uh, they, everywhere I go, if I'm, if I move the truck out of the garage to, you know, to load it up, I mean, they'll want to get in the truck and, you know, back up, you know, two car lengths and I let them out and they think, you know, that, oh, we're good from, you know, home from a long trip. So, so they can be a little possessive of their owner in terms of uh, not wanting to leave them. Uh, the, the, the droughts have been around are a little more aloof. They're a little more relaxed with that, which, which can be a good thing. They can be a little bit more independent. Um, you, you know, it, it, I wouldn't hesitate getting a droth over a poodle pointer if I'm hunting, um, you know, real uh, wet, cold, icy conditions that they just, there's a little more meat to them. Uh, uh, they, they just seem to withstand uh, the, uh, um, th those wet, cold, icy conditions uh, a little bit longer. Uh, you know, I, I hunt in ice with my dogs. I've, I've seen them hunt, uh, uh, these poodle pointers uh, hunt in the um, Yellowstone River area, you know, full of ice and snow, and, and they were good out there all day. But, uh, but the droths are, I think, a little more equipped for that. Uh, 
uh, hunted with them in the winter up in Alaska even, and they, they do good. So, so I think it, you know, as far as drawbacks, um, you know, for me, there, there's, there's really nothing with this, uh, with this breed, but again, I, I have all of my needs out there and I've weighed them and I know exactly what I wanted at a dog. And, and I think people need to do the full research, you know, don't just buy it, buy a pup on impulse or, you know, because we're having this conversation about them now, they're great dogs for us and for what we want uh, to do with them. But, uh, you know, if you're just going to hunt chuckers or upland birds all the time, uh, you know, maybe you want to get something else. If you're just going to hunt cold water, you know, waterfowl all the time, then maybe a lab is what you want. That was my next question. Nate um, and I talk about this, how labs are, I get frustrated. I want to go on a hike on a 75 degree day and my, my lab, my black lab will often overheat long before I do. They're just yeah. built for the cold. That's what Nate says, they're built for the cold, which is great because he is too. He lives in Maine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how do these breeds stack up on that level? I mean, well, it, you know, I've pretty terrible in the heat like black labs. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a really good question. And, and I, I, train hard with my dogs to, I guess I should say condition all summer long. And I mean, I, th th they'll, they'll hunt shed antlers for me. I mean, all day long. Um, if it's a hundred degrees out and they'll just keep going, you know, they'll stop in a Creek and get water. I'll take water with me. Then, then they'll do it the next day. And I've, you know, hunted with buddies who have labs and, you know, we're hunting some, some big country for Roosevelt sheds and blacktail sheds. And, you know, after two or three hours and, you know, getting warm, then, you know, then, then their labs are done. Uh, whereas I'll just keep going with the poodle pointer. As long as there's something to drink, they'll, the, 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 their drive is such that they go till they die. Um, but they have the physical ability to keep pushing themselves where, whereas, uh, you know, some labs will, I've seen them burn out and, and to, you know, that, that, that's not so much to, to speak badly about the, the lab breed. I, that's more, I think, uh, coming back on the owner, you know, labs put on weight a lot more easily. I, I hunt with a lot of friends who love their labs and they're good dogs, but they're overweight. Um, I, I see more overweight labs than any other breed. And, you know, feeding them hamburgers and, you know, a dog's diet is hugely important. You know, you think of a professional athlete out there, I can guarantee you they're not going to McDonald's after the game on Sunday. You know, uh, they, they're eating a very uh, good, healthy diet, a well-disciplined diet. And, and, and you know, you, you take two pounds off of an overweight dog and it, it can be a totally different dog. Can you talk a little bit about that, Scott? Like, I mean, your dogs are getting after it and. I mean, just this past week, I, I think you named about four different upland species, waterfowl. What are you feeding and how important do you feel that is in keeping that, you know, that fuel tank going? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that food is one of those things that I, uh, I, I just kind of cringe when I see what people are feeding their dogs. And maybe it's because my wife's a dietitian and I went through it all with, our, I guess, nutritionist, I should say. So we've always ate a healthy diet in our family, you know, raising two boys as well. Um, it, it, uh, there, you, there, are, there are a lot of good foods out there it, just like hunting gear, you know, we, we, we're all into hunting gear, calls, decoys, waiters, clothes, whatever it is. And we all know that some of the best gear will never be discovered by people because they don't have the advertising dollars to get it in front of people. And I find that with, with dog food, it's just because you see it and, you know, every TV commercial or every box store you walk into or every magazine you flip to doesn't necessarily mean that's the best quality food for your dog. Um, it, it, I've, I've seen a lot of times when, pe when um, 
um, dog food manufacturers will say, try our dog food. And if you don't notice a difference within 30 days, you know, money back guarantee. If you switch dog food and you don't notice a difference within three feedings, within 24 to 36 hours, 48 hours max, then, then I, I, I'd be hard pressed to say that you're going to notice a difference. Um, the way dogs metabolize food, you see the result of that very quickly. So I, you know, I tried several brands over the years. Then I went to Nutrisource and absolutely loved it. Um, then, um, they, they came out with this new line and this is just what I personally use. I, you know, I buy the food, I don't get a dime from them. Um, you know, I'm not sponsored by them or anything like that. They came out with an element line, uh, what they call their element series of food, very high protein, uh, 80 to 90% uh, high protein, which dogs metabolize extremely well. And they're absolutely perfect, uh, for, for my dogs. My dogs are very active. And, and if we're out there, um, you know, you know, covering seven, eight, 10, 11 miles hunting sheds and, you know, really rugged country. Um, my, my female, you know, sometimes wouldn't be able to go out the following day. And just with the anti-inflammatory, um, you know, uh, and high nutrients factors in this element of food, it, she can, I, I mean, all hunt her five days a week, just, just go, 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 go. And, and she just doesn't slow down. She'll, she'll be a little bit slow, a little bit sore at the end of the day. This last hunt just, just kicked her butt. Um, it was just, we've had a lot of uh, just really thick brush out there. And she was bloody and cut and could hardly move at the end of the day. But the next morning she was, she was fine and ready to go. And, and the food has a lot to do with that. It's a lot quicker recovery time, a lot less inf uh, inflammation in their body. Arthritis is pretty much uh, being eliminated because of this, this, um, you know, anti-inflammatory diet. And I feed quite a bit of raw stuff to my dogs too. So, so that's something to balance in with it as well. Yeah, I've always found, you know, the biggest thing being high, high quality protein and fat, um, whether that's Yukonuba, Purina, or Nutrisource, you know, I think that's so big for dogs that get after it consistently. Now, how old are your, you have one that's older, are any considerations as far as, as that dog matures, how are you adjusting their working calendar? Like for, for the guys out there who have a dog, I mean, my lab, he just turned six. I haven't seen him slow down yet, but at the same time, I'm a little bit more mindful of lifting him out of the pickup. So things on your joints, things like that. How old is your oldest poodle pointer? Uh, so she'll, she'll be eight here. Uh, yeah. In February. Uh, and then, yeah, my, uh, my, my, the black one is five. Um, okay. So, so she, you know, she is to the point where her, her drive, to even when we're training, if we're doing bumper training, um, it, it is it is still so powerful that I just I have to slow down what I do. Um, she had an injury this summer where she actually um, it would have been I guess like a, equivalent to a groin pull, um, where I was training her on dry grass and she just I mean, hundred miles an hour and and uh, um, was uh, we were doing some blind bumper training and she caught wind of it. And, and just sped right by and slipped on the grass. And, and I, I thought she did some serious, you know, back damage, but, but she was out of commission for about two months because of that. And I thought, Oh no, now, 
you know, we're going to get right into the hunting season and I'm going to lose her for the first part of the hunting season, but she recovered, you know, 100% fully. And, and so, so, you know, that's something dry grass training. Um, you know, if you, if you have a, you know, a jacked up truck where you're getting the dog in and out of that, you know, lift them out of that. Um, I, you know, if you have two dogs and they're competing to get, you know, out the door all the time, I think that's one of the things that in a video that we just uh, did for you guys for, for the wildfowl website, you know, 15 things not to do for your gun dog. That, that's, that's one of the things I see all the time, especially when there are a lot of dogs around people open the car door or the dog or the, you know, the, the door to the house or camp and hear all these dogs busting out of the door to, to try to get to the place first. And I've seen injuries with that and I've seen dog fights with that. And just, just like you say, you know, kind of a lot of common sense stuff. And if you see, even after a workout where these dogs are stiff, I do a lot of water workouts with my dogs and, and I, it's one of the best workouts there are for them. Low impact, a very good cardio and muscular workout for them. You know, they'll be tired after that. So, you know, I, I'm lifting my female out of the truck for that. And, you know, my male is still fine, but, but yeah, just, just be mindful of that. You know, um, we just had new wood floors put in our house just finished yesterday, as a matter of fact, and, and the dogs are slipping all over the place. I'm like, Oh my gosh, are you kidding me? You know, here we just put all this money and time into these floors and they're slick as crud. So now I'm getting on the internet and we're ordering carpets for wherever these dogs are going to go. I want them to be on carpets because, you know, if they see something running around or if one of our cats comes in out of the field, you know, they're going to go crazy and spin in their wheels and there could be some injury there too. So, so just be very aware, you know, of what's going on with, with the dog, just pay close attention to them. You know, they'll tell you with their eyes what's going on and, 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 you know, you'll see through their actions by observation, what you need to do to, to help them out. Yeah. I think that's so important. Um, you know, you just, it's not like, uh, you know, a, a gun that you can put away wet, you know, if they're, it's not a, a Benelli, uh, you know, coat yeah. vest or something like just this past weekend with my lab shattered two nails, you know, in the course of grouse hunting three days, but you couldn't tell at all. I mean, he wasn't even limping. They'll just continue to push through it. So being mindful, looking your dog over well, uh, because they'll, like you said, they have that drive that will just push them through. We got to kind of have to be their, uh, their guardians in that way, you know, yeah. especially yeah. as they age. Anyone who's had a black lab figures out, out in a hurry, they don't see barbed wire. Even during dove season, they'll go through it. They'll rip their ear and hop. And you never know it until you see the blood. Yeah. Um, I wish I had more opportunity for water workouts close to home. Scott, you don't have any choice. You live in Oregon. You don't have any dry land. You got nothing for water workouts. Um, but I, uh, I went through that the other day, which you guys were talking about, just being mindful. Luna comes from a – my black lab comes from a super athletic line, and she's almost five years old now. She traditionally sails into the trucks, and, and I do lift her out. But she'll sail up into them um, effortlessly like a jackrabbit. It's always cleared, and then we had a – had a downslope underneath my buddy's taller than, than mine truck. Um, and it was kind of sandy and I didn't really think about it. And I told her to kennel and I watched her bang her lower rear right leg against the tailgate so hard. I felt terrible. And the next day when I was petting her absentmindedly at my desk, I bumped her uh, the thigh, I guess it's, you would say, and, and she yelled and I felt freaking horrible. So I'm going to help her into the truck too from now on. It's exactly that kind of thing. And, uh, Scott, I got to say, your uh, your dogs are powerful. You just sent me an amazing photo of uh, of one of them with an, a good five point bull elk shed in its mouth, 
and uh, I made a note to my art director to make sure that makes it into your story in that magazine because it's a it's a really cool shot. But we have some exciting news. Um, me and Scott have been uh, banging back and forth on story ideas forever, and he wanted to he proposed a column on like the heritage and lore and the pageantry and the history of duck hunting and and how to be a good duck hunter in terms of uh, to be mindful, be respectful, and not be one of these. Uh, people out there who are doing things that makes everyone else mad, and I'm like, the magazine is is full of a uh, of of legacy, for lack of a heritage pieces, for a better word. And I I wanted to make I'm just voicing this to him while we're on the phone. I wanted to make sure that we're heavy on tactics and and learning and being inviting, because um, our ongoing mission for the last 30 years has been to help people be more successful out there and, and kill more ducks. To be to be blunt, and Scott noodled on that for about 30 seconds and. He had, a, he had an aha moment, and he's like, that's exactly what we'll do. We'll have one called, called The Killing Zone. We'll do a column, and it'll be about all these things, how to be a better, how to become a good duck hunter, sort of fundamentals and basics, but not in a condescending way, in a way that even veterans um, like me and him and, and people who are more new to waterfowling, like Mr. Ratsford, uh, can all benefit. And he immediately, like 20 minutes later, sent me an email um, and what made me think of it is it's going to premiere in our April issue, which is our big dog issue. And one of his things was um, we have plenty of dog columns, but he had a new idea how to really prepare a dog um, for a, this, not just the season, but for a road trip, for a road trip to make sure that we're mindful of the dog. And, and he also um, is going to write about how to effectively use layouts. Layouts are getting a bad rap now because uh, everyone's used them right in the smack in the middle of the field for so long. And, He's going to write one about how to effectively use them, how to choose a spot to hunt. And he's done tremendous things with us about um, how to do decoy setups. He did a brilliant video that's on Wildfowl where he set up four different uh, decoy setups standing on burns in between uh, some flooded pasture, was it, Scott? Yeah, some rice fields. Yeah, rice field. And he, he had them all set up and then he narrated as it, the camera swung around and showed them all behind you. He's really good at explaining fundamentals. And we haven't decided on a name for this column. We'd love listeners to chime in on wildfowlmag.com. We're thinking the starting line, maybe the kill zone. Scott just said the breakdown, um, breaking down how to, how to really get going out there. And Scott, I'd love you to talk about your other 15 ideas a little bit about this, this column that's going to launch in the spring that you're going to have to make sure you get to Mr. Rafford on time. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm really excited. I've, uh, yeah, admired the magazine for years. And, and it, you know, since the pandemic, uh, you know, hunting license sales have just been, you know, through the roof nationwide. Uh, a lot of new hunters, a lot of people who hunted as kids and then got away from it while they, you know, did it, had their career and raised a family and now they're getting back into it. So for whatever reason, we have a, a lot of new hunters coming um, into the field and a lot of them are, are starting off with waterfowl. Uh, you know, a lot of birds, long season, uh, not as hard to get private land hunting access for waterfowl as it is for, uh, you know, big game. So, so, and there's a lot of great public land hunting opportunities. So with that, you know, it's kind of funny because we're, you know, as you and I have thrown around ideas over the month, it's like, you know, Duh. that's why skips the editor and i'm just that you know the peon writer out here because that was a brilliant idea just you know we need to educate some of these new people and it's kind of you know what we talked about uh you know at the beginning of this podcast you know any, anytime you know we're, we're we're all blessed to make a living in the outdoors what we do and not that we're experts at it but we're out there making mistakes of you know learning um you know gaining insight through actual in the field activity 
um, not, uh, you know, not by watching videos or anything like that. It's all trial and error, personal trial and error. So being able to share those experiences with people, uh, you know, from simple, um, you know, blind setups to wh what kind of decoy spreads to use and in what situations to scouting and, and, uh, you know, what, what, one prime example, you know, my dad, who's what, 81 years old and, and, you know, pretty old school in it and his thoughts, you know, still has some of the old wood calls that he had, you know, you know, 50 years ago and, and still blows a duck call way better than I do. But, uh, but, you know, just getting away from some of the traditional decoy spreads um, that, that he's been used to over the years. And, and we, we were hunting a place together um, earlier this season and, and there, there was a pretty high wind coming from one direction and how we were going to set up the decoys wasn't um, conducive to the wind situation. And so, you know, I, I wanted to pack them really, really tight to the shoreline where these birds were going to be coming out of the wind and, and it worked really, really well. And, and so, you know, for, so even some of, some of the longtime readers of Wildfowl, you know, maybe we can help them gain, gain a little bit insight, uh, a little bit more insight as to how improve, uh, they can improve their, their hunting strategies. So that's one thing I love about waterfowlers. They're, they're great communicators. Um, th th there's not the competition that you see in other parts of, of the hunting industry or the hunting world. Uh, people are out there to help each other out. You know, for, for most of us, I think we'd all agree that that, you know, who spent some time out there, you know, if you get a limit, that's great. You know, if you can make two or three great shots and drop those birds dead in the decoy and watch someone else shoot a limit with you and watch the dogs work great, you know, that, that you're not going to get a better day than that. So it's not always about, you know, killing high numbers of birds. It's about what you can do to, to increase your efficiency and, and, and maximize your ability as a hunter, to, you know, to close the deal more consistently. That's what I love about you, Scott. You're, you're such an expert. You've been there and done that on a level so different than even most hunters will ever experience. But you always speak and write from a place of humility and uh, in an in inviting way. So we're really excited about the column. Nathan, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, you're uh, someone who's been hunting quite a while, but you're really getting into waterfowl and going on a lot of adventures with wildfowl and doing a heck of a great job with photography and writing for us and editing. What are some of uh, the the subjects you'd like to see Scott cover in the starting line, the breakdown or whatever we're going to call it, the, this new department, which obviously I'm going to have to make four pages instead of a normal one or two. <laughs> I, I'm particularly interested in uh, the decoy spreads in different situations. Uh, that's something that I think only comes from a lot of time in the field and observing ducks on the water and getting as realistic as possible. Um, and also reading the water and how to effectively put that all together. Um, from someone who's relatively new into the waterfall space, there's so many moving parts. Um, you know, the blind, the decoys, the hide. I mean, everything needs to be right um, in order to get some good numbers. So one thing in particular I'd like to hear about is the decoys, but um, also just for someone who hunts a lot by himself, even just how, how to make that work, you know, when there is, it's so gear intensive. If you want to set up and just shoot a few ducks on, you know, a, a Creek bed or uh, a small body of water, how to manage that yourself. Like, you know, as far as making sure you have a sled uh, to haul decoys or making that as efficient as possible with someone who likes to, to get out by himself and how to make that happen. Um, that would be interesting to me. And that's partly why I'm drawn up when hunting, going in the car with my dog. 
but I'd like to know how to, to make that as efficient as possible for sure. Um, so I'm really looking forward to the column for sure. Um, you know, uh, I'm very excited about it. Well, cool. People are always, uh, they're really interested in seeing how magazines come together, how they're put together and now how we interface all that with social and, and web presence too. And you guys just uh, witnessed an impromptu editorial meeting and uh, Scott took some away some ideas and embellished on what's coming. And that was really cool. Uh, and Nathan, congratulations. You just gave me a third idea of what to call Scott's new column, the moving parts you mentioned. I think oh, I like that. And it's funny because, you know, even with this, I got some ideas and, and, and what, what Nate mentioned there, you know, this um, on a hunt last week, my dad and I, we belong to a little duck club. It's nothing big and fancy. And, you know, we don't have a clubhouse and all that stuff, but there were four different groups of hunters out there. Um, my dad and I had a dozen decoys out. We we're limited within two hours. Um, what one other blind, they got two, another blind got three and another blind got three. And that's all they killed. And they're like, what in the world are you guys doing? You know, one guy, um, said, you know, we, we had four dozen decoys out and, mm. and, uh, I said, well, gosh, you know, you're you, where you were, you know, no matter how many decoys you had out, you know, it's, it's all about position of them. And another one, they just blew on the call, just all just, just nonstop, just and, you know, I, I don't call a whole lot, uh, mostly because I'm not a real good caller. I let my dad kind of handle that. But, uh, uh, but, but, um, but they, they were doing that. And then the other one just weren't letting the birds circle. You know, we, these birds are getting shot at pretty heavily now. So we'd have flocks circling six, seven times before they finally committed. And, and so all three of them were kind of, you know, doing something wrong. And like I said, we only had a dozen decoys out there and they were just perfectly placed with the wind situation. And, and that was all you needed. So so that's something I hadn't even really thought about until until Nate brought that up, you know, what uh, about, you know, single single person kind of um, scenarios. And I think that'd be really cool to, to you know, ha have listeners and subscribers, you know, even answer to, hey, what would you like to see? You know, you, 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 you know, us three have been at it quite a while. So a lot of times we overlook the obvious stuff and, and, uh, and I, I, I think there's a lot of, a lot, a lot of help that we could get from, from, uh, um, from fellow hunters out there. Great. I um, was just uh, hunting in South Dakota with, with Browning, as you know, and Megan Patrick and um, Me Rafe Nielsen, who was a, a, a powerful influence with Browning, you know, announced, you know, calling doesn't work. I don't believe in it. Whenever, <laughs> uh, <laughs> whenever the guides stop, stop calling and, and we start talking to each other, birds come in. And he was joking, half joking, but and we all know it really does work. You know, we all, yeah. I'm shocked at how well it works, to be honest, especially if you're a mediocre caller like like me or you claim to be. We'll see about that next week. Uh, <laughs> we're chasing capitals in Oregon. But um, yeah, it's uh, there's no doubt that overcalling and knowing when to call is a very big deal. I was calling with a famous caller, Keith Allen, in, uh, in Arkansas once and uh, decided to, to start start quacking. And uh, he, he said, where do you go, man? You just flared the only duck that we had all week because I didn't see the one that was coming in that everyone else was looking at. And I go, wah, 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 but it was too close. You know, it was inside 40 yards. It was a CV anyway, but anyway, I'm looking forward to, to this column very much as well. Yeah. Scott, I love that your, your son caught you on that awesome video. Please remember to tell people where to watch that video on your life on YouTube, how they find it, um, what it's called. I love that he caught you in your pajamas during one scene. <laughs> Still looked like a college football player with the big arms and everything. It was funny to see you completely in <laughs> um, 
you uh, you've led a wilder life than, than most, many of us, and than even I knew than, than most people ever will. Do you have any advice? Uh, we got to start winding down here. I knew this would go this way. We got to we're gonna make <laughs> we're gonna make you a victim on a bi-monthly basis to this podcast. <laughs> Do you have any advice for people who are like struggling to decide whether to to chase their dream or um, or safe route in life? Because you you that video was was wonderful, but your son didn't really get into um, the why. Why did you guys go to a place where it was minus zero for almost two hundred days and no daylight for twenty four hours? And that's not the fun Indonesian adventure, you know. Why did you guys to do that? And what advice do you have for people who are sitting there going? I always wish this is what I'm doing, but I always wish I could be a, that's a question all anyone in the outdoor industry, especially writers get, you know, on a monthly basis. How'd you get to do what you're, how'd you get to be doing what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, it's really a good question. And I feel those, I've fielded those questions for over 20 years from, from people, you know, how do I get to do what you did? And, you know, it, it's just kind of everyone's personal journey, right? So like it, like a lot of people out there, I was born and raised hunting, fishing, trapping, and, you know, both sides of my mom and dad's family did it too. And so it was a normal thing. I think what a couple of things fell in place for me. Um, one, I was a, a teacher as well and a coach. So, um, you know, I was able to educate uh, people and through writing and, and through hosting TV shows and, and, uh, so I have a master's degree in, in education. And, and uh, so, you know, there's the education side of it as well with background in biology. So, so that helps as well. Um, and, and biggest thing for me was just timing with, in the outdoor industry. Um, I'd been doing some writing for Cabela's, a lot of online stuff for them in the late nineties, uh, early 2000. And they asked me to guest host a TV show for them on sturgeon fishing above the Columbia river. And, and, uh, and I did, and then they, um, they invited me to go to the um, outdoor channel banquet for whatever they are giving away a golden moose award thing. And I, I wasn't real big into awards or anything like that. So I just, I just gracefully declined and, and uh, it won some, some awards and, and some other production companies picked it up. And, and uh, right about that time, the outdoor channel launched their HD channel and they hired me to, um, to host a series of, um, of hd fishing shows so they wanted to do a test they wanted uh to do a big game hunting show which jim zumbo hosted and then they wanted to do a fishing show which i hosted and i did all salmon and steelhead in oregon washington and alaska and it, to this day it's some of the best footage i've ever seen so they outdoor channel hired me to host it they got a crew out of hollywood to shoot it they were shooting on these big sony f900 uh, cameras that had uh, two or three you know uh, members out there all the time shooting it you know that's what uh, uh, george lucas shot star wars on the first time and and so you know big toys they brought to the table and uh and and it went over really well and they wanted to renew it and but they wanted me to do bill fishing all around the world and i said man if i can't fish salmon and steelhead i i could really care less about a bill fish whoa whoa, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa are you kidding me no after fishing after fishing uh you could be catching billfish and uh yeah billfish only live one place yeah well yeah parts of the world <laughs> no you know it was going to be africa australia you know mexico everywhere chasing chasing billfish and and i'm not much of an ocean guy and i'd rather catch a steelhead than a marlin anyway I don't know, but uh, uh, anyway, so, so I gracefully declined and they said, well, uh, how about an international big game show? 
So we did and we actually went to Africa for a little over a month and I shot a whole um, season uh, over there in that time. And, and it did really well. And from there, things just took off. So for me getting into the industry, it was perfect timing. I didn't have to worry about sponsors or anything like that. Um, uh, you know, shooting original programming for the Outdoor Channel was really good. And I was still writing. Uh, you know, during those years, I was all, always averaging over 200 uh, articles a year for magazines. And, and that's something I'll hit, you know, even again this year. Uh, so, 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 you know, there, there are a lot of pieces of the pie. So for me, it was, you know, TV, uh, it was magazine writing, it was books. My wife and I, she writes cookbooks uh, on, on fishing game. Um, we've written over 20 books together. So books are part of it. And then speaking. So there was one year when I was hosting two shows for the Outdoor Channel, we started down um, uh, our season August 1st and I was home eight days between then and, and New Year's you know miss Thanksgiving miss my wife's birthday like 13 years in a row um, you know which hers is October 2nd so right in the middle of hunting season so so having an understanding spouse is the number one thing because you're gone a lot in this industry um, they went with me quite a bit but then when that was over with then we'd hit the speaking circuit uh, we did a lot with Cabela's, uh, spoke at NRA conventions, you know, all over the country. So there were several, several years we were gone three months at a time. And that's when the family was with us, too. We homeschooled our boys quite a bit just because of the situation we were in with being on the road. So, uh, you know, the, several years I was out there, 250, 260 days a year, um, just doing stuff year round. So that's a lot of time away. I would do all my writing on the road for magazines and so forth. Uh, you know, all of our post-production work would, would be taken care of, you know, in studios, whether in Washington, Oregon or California. So you'd, you know, try to wrap up all that stuff, uh, you know, in between. So, so it was a juggling act. I got out of TV in 2014. I just didn't like the direction it was going. And uh, after we got out of it, actually, Netflix picked up our show, as did Amazon Prime. And they ran it for three years, the one called The Hunt. That was the last TV show we did. And that was that was a nice little contract something we weren't counting on, and, and it was actually running in over fifty some countries at that time as well. So, so that's kind of our background story. Why we went to Alaska? Met my known my wife since kindergarten. Our parents went to school together. Our grandparents knew each other. Um, I was the quarterback. She was the brainiac, you know, hot cheerleader, and we just knew who each other was, you know, for the whole time growing up. Um, she went to Oregon State. I went to Oregon. We hadn't seen each other all of our college careers. We ran across each other one night and uh, um, she got her teaching degree. I got my teaching degree. She said, where are you going to teach? I said, I want to move to Arctic Alaska and teach up there with the Inupid Eskimos because I, I always wanted to learn how to trap and hunt and fish in that environment. And she said, well, you better do it now while you're single because no woman's ever going to follow you up there. Um, I went home that night, called my mom. I said, I found the girl I'm going to marry. And four months later, we were engaged. And nine months later, we were married, living in Arctic Alaska. And so, yeah, that was what, 30, almost 32 years ago now, 31 and a half years ago, I guess. So, so you know, everything kind of worked together. But, if, you know, if we were to look back on my life and say, how did we get to where we are and how do we continue doing what, we, what we're doing? My motto has pretty much always been jump in with both feet and don't look back. And I hear that all the time. People be like, you know, I want to do this. But, you know, I can't quit my job and, I, you know, I want to do what you're doing, but I don't have the time. And, and it's not for everyone. It's very time consuming. And if I didn't hunt fish, do big game, do predators, you know, 
uh, birds, you know, everything. Um, there's no way that, that I could make a living at it. And especially my wife with her cooking. I mean, hundred percent of the population eats, right? So the cooking, the cooking side of things is a very, a very big part of our, of our business. So as it said in that video that you saw that my son put together, if you do what you've always done, you'll be where you've always been. And, and that's fine. It's a security for a lot of people. And I understand that this is a life I wouldn't want for, for my boys. It's hard. I'm gone. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm very focused all the time. People are talking to me and I have no clue what they're saying because I'm trying to figure out where I need to put the decoys because the storm is coming up for tomorrow's hunt type of thing. The wheels are always turning, which isn't, it isn't good, but, uh, but I enjoy it. And because I enjoy it, I work hard to be good at it. I just, uh, I was just doing that to you. I'm sorry. We just saying something, Scott, and I'm going to do something in the morning. <laughs> well, if you, if you uh, got a Brainiac cheerleader to move to, to a place where it's 200 uh, days of sub-zero, you need to write a, a book just about that. But seriously, you've written a lot of books. Where can um, people check out your stuff, maybe get a signed copy? Yep. So they can just go to my website. It's just my name, just scotthaugen.com, S-C-O-T-T-H-A-U-G-E-N.com. That video that we're talking about is um, on Alaska is one my son did. He's been working for us since he was 10. Um, he actually had his first contracted work from Cabela's when he was 10. They didn't know how old he was. And so, so he's been doing video production stuff for years. And he was a part of our TV show for years as well uh, there. Um, but his name is Braxton Haugen. And uh and they can just go to his website, just braxtonhaven.com, and that Alaska movie is up there. It's a pretty, pretty cool little story put together. Well, Mr. Wildman from Alaska, who I guess you're not originally from there, uh, we want to do a couple more podcasts, one on, on Alaska waterfowling, which is something near and dear to you and my heart. We're probably the only two people on podcast right now that both had King Eiders in the background behind us if we were doing video. <laughs> um, we want to do one on that, and we want to do one all about cacklers, that unique gorgeous Canada goose that, that you have become the master of, though you would probably never admit it. And uh, if everything goes our way, maybe I'll get to catch a steelhead with you next week. Uh, and we're probably the only elk hunters on our trip with Luke Holden Browning next week to Oregon, your backyard, who are um, trying to get an elk, not just to get an elk, but to get one quickly and get it over with so we can go catch steelhead. Yeah, that's right. You're the first legal bull you see so we can get after birds. <laughs> <laughs> to feathers hey Nate you got anything else from Mr. Mr. Hogan we're gonna we're gonna come at, make him a repeat victim like I said but is there anything you would uh I I just want to thank you again for coming on Scott um you lived up to all my expectations and I, I look forward to talking with you more I feel like we have a lot more to discuss and um yeah just thank you again I really appreciate it and learned a lot in the process so so thank you well, thanks for the kind words. I enjoy it. It's fun to, fun to team up and, and uh, yeah, hopefully we can help out fellow hunters. Awesome. Well, you're an important part of uh, wild sound, Scott, and we appreciate it, as well as the contributions you make to Predator Nation North American Elk. I'd well, like to keep talking, but we gotta, I got to go finish uh, making jerky and continuing to clean out the freezer so to make room for this elk uh, that we're going to knock down. The <laughs> That's awesome. No, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. I love the columns. It's just a nice regular way to connect with, uh, with readers and fellow hunters. And it's just, it, it allows you to build a relationship that you can't get with features. And, and I, I just can't tell you how much I appreciate this opportunity. We're all super excited about the column. Congratulations on that. And I think we'll wrap it up with that. Uh, Everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, we hope the hunting season's going really well out there. It's uh, 
it's turning out to be a really good one. All we need is a bunch of water this winter and uh, we can avoid a lot of doom and gloom in the near future. Be safe out there. Remember the best hunter is the one having the most fun and being safe. Um, and remember you can listen to all these podcasts through all of, you can download them through all the traditional outlets, but you can also get them, uh, just listen to them directly at wildfowlmag.com. And until next time, be safe and have fun out there. We'll talk to you soon.